welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Um, so we're in week two of a series called Esther. It's called All of the Above. And uh, I, I want to just um, jump in where we were last week. If you were here last week, uh, I'm guessing you may have left uh, unsettled, possibly. Um, sometimes I, I give a little preview to my wife, Laura, and uh, sometimes that's good and sometimes it's not. Um, it, it, last, after last week, I gave her a little preview, and her response was, oh, great, like Esther's not real now. What's next? Um, so I'm guessing that maybe some of you left last week kind of going, okay, not heard that take on it before. Um, and I want to just um, jump in from there. And uh, so I'm not backtracking necessarily, but I want to discuss or just develop an important piece of this. And I want to ask this question. So we talked about the idea that um, historically Esther – no mention of her in history, right? There, as, as far as history goes, no historical woman named Esther who was a Jewish teenager who became the queen of Persia, okay? Um, a lot of the things that happen in the story of Esther historically don't really pan out. Um, so if Esther didn't really exist as she exists in this story, um, we talked a little bit about that. And the question I want to start with this morning is, so what? Right? So what? Let's just say for a moment, Esther wasn't a real person, that there was no Jewish teenage queen uh, of Persia. Um, so what if there was no actual decree to annihilate the Jewish people in this story, right? So what? So what if uh, there was no actual, if I perish, I perish moment? So what if there was no real velveteen rabbit? So what if there was no real um, hungry caterpillar? So what if there's no real... Uh, Frodo and Sam, Jean Valjean, Robin Hood, Neo, right? The Matrix, the Matrix. These are all, there's, these are all stories that we still tell our children, maybe save the Matrix, um, but these are stories that we still tell our kids. Why? Because they have value and they communicate something that's true. So I want to start by asking the question, so what if Esther, as, as she exists in this particular story, wasn't totally 100% accurate. Karl Barth, in, uh, in one of my favorite theologians, he's being interviewed and talking about the historicity of Genesis, the book of Genesis. And they're talking particularly about the serpent, right? The snake, the serpent in, in the book of Genesis, the one that talks to Adam and Eve. And, and the, the interviewer asks him, you know, do you think that the serpent spoke? And Barth's response is just dead spot on brilliant, in my, in my opinion. He says this, he says, it doesn't matter whether the serpent spoke. What matters is what the serpent said. Do you see the difference? It doesn't matter if the serpent actually like, spoke with his forked tongue. For our purposes and what the scriptures are trying to tell us, is it matters what the serpent said. You're not complete you are actually equal to God. Um, you're not the way you're supposed to be, but if you eat this, then you will be. What matters is what the serpent said, not if the serpent actually spoke. So in the same way, I want to kind of, I want to jump in here and at, at, at Esther to say, this is a beautiful book and it's in the canon and it's of value to us because it tells a story that matters. It tells a story that's true. It tells a story that represents something that means something to us as people who follow Jesus. 
It represents a God, and it tells the story of a God who's faithful to the covenant people that he made a promise to, who were real, actual people. Uh, it's, it means something to us because it tells the story of the gospel, the sacrifice of one for the benefit, for the blessing of, for the redemption of all. So it tells a story that matters to us, and it tells a story that rings true with what we know of God and what we know of the world that we live in. So, having said that, let's jump into Esther chapter 1, and I want to look at Esther chapter 1 and look at a couple of subtexts that I think are just lurking right below the surface. So, I'll just read, we're going to read the whole chapter here, so hang on, here we go. It says, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and of Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present for a full 180 days. That's six months, friends. He displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and splendor and glory for uh, glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days, as if they hadn't had enough. In the cl- enclosed garden, the king's palace, for all the people of the least, from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings with white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen, purple material, to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of, however you say that word, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, and each one different from the other. The royal wine, the good stuff, not two buck chuck, was abundant, in keeping with the king's liberality, which is now three buck chuck. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man as he wished, or what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when the king Xerxes was high in spirits, he was bombed. From wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, a bunch of different crazy names, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty. To the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. You can interpret that. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come, and then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of the law and justice, especially when he's drunk, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times, who were also drunk, and were close, I'm adding a few things here in case you didn't notice, and were, who were closest to the king, uh, a bunch of names, seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he says. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then uh, a guy who might be translated Mordecai in your script, or I'm sorry, um, Haman, replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but against all the nobles of the peoples of all the provinces of the king. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the of nobility who will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way, there will be no end to disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree. Let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of, king, of the king Xerxes. Also, let her give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all the vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Haman proposed, sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, each province of his own script, to each people in his own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his own household. 
Let me pray if I could. God, as we step into this story, I ask that you would reveal yourself to us. Uh, I pray this uh, often, but uh, I ask, God, that out of the two-dimensional text which we have in our hands, that the living word of God would come up out of this story and reveal, continue to reveal yourself to us, God. I pray that you would speak words that we need to hear and that we would have eyes and ears to hear you and see you. We pray in your name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Um, quite a story. A couple of uh, notes about the text. Number one, um, the, 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 the kingdom of Persia looked about like this, uh, if you can see the screen behind me here. Uh, all, that, that, all that's in pink. So we're talking a massive, massive, massive expanse of land. Lots and lots of people uh, conquered by the Persians and the Medes. Uh, there's one guy named Xerxes who, how many of you have a different translation, a different person in your scriptures for the king's name? A couple of you? Okay, here's what's going on here. There's three different names that you might get for this guy's name, and they're on the next slide here, Katie. Um, the first one, uh, I can't really pronounce it because it, it's actually in Hebrew. I'm going to give it a whirl. Achashavrosh, or something like that. It doesn't look like it sounds, or it doesn't sound like it looks. But uh, in Hebrew, that's the same guy. Xerxes is the Greek version of this guy. And then the other one, which I'm not even going to attempt, is the Persian version of this guy. So it's all the same person, in case you're wondering, okay? Uh, verses 5 to 8 marks um, the opulence and the absolute craziness of Persian parties. This, this is recognized in other historical books and uh, extra-biblical books. Uh, where they talk about the, the nuts-o factor of Persian parties. Tons of wine, tons of other things that they drank, lots of wine for sure. Um, one, one particular Greek guy says this about Persian parties. He says they're extremely fond of wine, and they are not supposed to vomit or urinate when anyone else can see. This is an important note. Everyone should write that down. Although they have to be careful about all of that, it is usual for them to be drunk when they are debating the most important issues. However, any decision that they reach is put to them again on the next day when they are sober by the head of the household where, they debate, where the debate takes place. Sorry about that. If they still approve of it when they're sober, it's adopted, but otherwise they forget about it. And any issues they debate when sober are reconsidered by them when they're drunk. So I'd like to offer this to the American political system and see if that helps at all. Um, the Persian parties were epic, okay? Uh, verse 8 talks about this, this rule, and a better translation of this might be, as for the drinking according to the rule, no one enforced it. There were actually rules that they had uh, when you were partying in the presence of the king, and it, it's sort of like a glorified frat party. When the king drinks, you drink, and as you can imagine, everybody just gets totally hammered. Um, so uh, the better translation of that would be that there was no rule in force. So any, you could drink as much as you want, as little as you like, and the best wine was out there, okay? Often in this time and in, in, in frame uh, or age, they would save the best wine or they would, they would save the best wine until last or, or they would actually sometimes they would flip it and they would give you some good wine at first and then when everybody was totally drunk, they would give you the bad wine because you wouldn't know the difference. But at this party, it's like the best stuff all the way across the board, right? Jesus' first miracle. You remember that has something to do with that. Um, verse 9, uh, really, I think, for us, begins to unopen or unlock and begins to open the key to this text. And it talks about what happens with Vashti. Um, and I think this gives us a key into the culture and the context that we're going to look at. And, and, and it does so because in this particular culture, it was not acceptable for women to party with men. So when this type of a party happened, 
and um, the, 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 you know, people started having a little bit to drink and so on and so forth. The women were excused, which is why Vashti has another party of her own in a separate place in the kingdom, in, in, the, in the palace. And the king and all of his friends do their thing. Why? Because at this point, the dancing girls and the concubines were brought out. And according to custom and according to culture, it was not acceptable and it was, it was, it was not honorable to have your wife participating or, or there and present when you were going to do these things. One, another Greek author says this, Plutarch, he says, The lawful wives of Persian kings sit beside them at dinner and eat with them, but when the kings wish to get marry and, or be merry and get drunk, they send their wives out and send for the dancing girls and concubines. They are right in what they do because they do not concede any share in their licentiousness and debauchery to their wedded wives. So Vashti's party was not because, um, you know, I don't know why, but whatever you might have thought, this is why it happened, okay? They would separate the men and the women when they, when they did this kind of a party. Um, verse 11 is an interesting one because it says that Vashti was fair, right? She was fair to look at. And it says that the queen summons her and with her tiara. Now, the, the rabbis uh, later on in the Midrash, which is the Jewish tradition, interpretation, tra- interpretive tradition, say that Vashti was summoned to the king's presence with nothing but a tiara right? Buck naked, stark naked, nothing but a tiara. Now, this isn't in the text itself, but this long interpretive tradition, this is what they would offer. That actually, she was summoned to, 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 parade, to be paraded in front of the king in nothing but a tiara. While, again, while it's not in the text, it remains that Vashti was summoned against what would have been considered appropriate and noble, even if she was clothed. It's safe to say that her to be summoned by her drunken husband amidst other men, dancing women, and concubines was inappropriate at the very least and completely and utterly degrading at the very worst. Now, the rest of the story, what follows is this absolutely, and we talked about this last week a little, um, bonkers, uh, over-exaggerated version of, right, um, everybody's drunk. And the king, the king of this massive empire says to his drunk friends, hey, what should we do about this, guys? What do you think? Um, typically not how kings would have acted. They say, hey, let's do this. Let's write a law that can never be repealed. Right? Imagine if we did that. As a, as, imagine if any government or any empire did that. Let's make a law that can never be repealed because we know for a fact that we're going to get it right this one time. Right? Of course, that would never happen. Um, they, they, uh, well, the law that's actually made, if you, if you read it carefully, it doesn't actually honor the king, right? Do you see what's going on here? In case you don't, I'll tell you. The men of, because you're all looking at me like I'm crazy. The men who who are are watching all this unfold are like, okay, snaps. Does everybody see what's going on here? If Vashti gets away with this, then the other, it's not that what she's going to do is going to encourage other women to go disrespect the king because a lot of people have an audience with the king. No. What they're going to do is they're going to go home to their husbands and say, no, I'm not going to put out. No, I'm not going to, so on and so forth. No, I'm not going to. And so the law that they make had nothing to do with protecting the king, and it had everything to do with their own sexual anxiety of, you know, not being able to do what they wanted with the women that were in their household. Craziness, total craziness. So those are a few just notes on the text. Now, let's look at a couple of subtexts or a couple of narratives that I think are just running uh, beneath the surface of this thing. Here they are. One could be accessed by asking this question. What informs your perception of beauty? What informs your perception of beauty? Um, In this particular story, Vashti 
is desired, is summoned to be paraded in front of these people, most likely not wearing much. Uh, and because she was beautiful, she was lovely to look at. In our culture, um, we have uh, some different things that inform our perception of beauty, yes? I'm wondering if any of those should be challenged. Uh, for example, in the romantic culture, culturally what was beautiful was robust, uh, pale, skinned, uh, lots of curves, right? You see this in, in art. You see this in the romantic art that we, that we have in, in uh, the galleries in our country and around the world. Why? Because if you were robust and you had lots of curves, um, you could eat and you were rich and you had access to good food and most likely culture because you had access to money. And if you didn't have to go out in the sun and work, then you were pale and fair-skinned. And so what was beautiful was voluptuous, uh, round, pale, right? That was a culturally defined and culturally conditioned perception of beauty. Now, what's, of course, beautiful in our culture? Tan, skinny, busty. Um, and for fellas, six-pack, you know, five o'clock shadow, uh, Brad Pitt, right? Or whoever, George Clooney, if you like an older guy. <laughs> that was awesome right there. I'm not going to tell you what, to, what I just saw because it was just perfect in that moment. Um, now, here's the thing. I ran across this story on Facebook this week, and, I'll, and I share this because it, it, I think it illustrates my point. Um, with this story on Facebook was a picture of a woman who wasn't wearing anything. She was, you know, covered up or whatever, but she was not the typical American 2000 beautiful woman, right? Um, says this, a while back at the entrance of a gym, there was a picture of a very thin and beautiful woman. The caption was, this, this summer, do you want to be a mermaid or a whale? The story goes, a woman of clothing size unknown answers the following way, dear people, Whales are always surrounded by friends, dolphins, seals, curious humans. They are sexually active. They raise their children with great tenderness. They entertain like crazy with dolphins, and they eat lots of prawns. They swim all day and travel to fantastic places like Patagonia, the Barents Sea, coral reefs of Polynesia. They sing incredibly well and sometimes are even on CDs. They are impressive and dearly loved animals, which everyone defends and admires. Mermaids do not exist. But if they existed, they would be lined up to see a psychologist because of the problem of their split personality, woman or fish. They would have no sex life, and they could not bear children. Yes, they would be lovely, but they would be lonely and sad. Without a doubt, I would rather be a whale at a time when the media tells us that thin is beautiful. I prefer to eat ice cream with my kids, have dinner with my husband, eat and drink and have fun with my friends. I ask you again, what informs your perception of beauty? We live in a culture that just stacks up the ads and the TV shows and the, sh and the movies and the songs that inform your perception of what is beautiful. And I want to challenge you this morning to think about that. I told a story a couple weeks ago about my friend, open and awake, right? Are we open and awake to what's happening, to the messages that are being sent to us and the things that are being told to us about what is beautiful, I'm guessing that some of the things that, that determine and influence what we think is beautiful run contrary to the kingdom of God and the way Jesus is and was and calls us to be in the world. So this is where we help each other out. 
The question, of course, remains, what does the Bible tell us? What does the revelation of Jesus tell us about what is beautiful? This is not a rhetorical question. What do we know about following Jesus? What does he reveal to us about that which is beautiful and that which is worthy of our gaze and that which captures our imagination and our attention? What does the Bible tell us? Feel free, jump in. I have nothing under this question on my notes. We're in the round. Come on, right? It's communal. We see faces and whatnot. Do we know nothing? about what the Bible, what the scriptures tell us, what Jesus tells us about what's beautiful. Okay, godly things are beautiful. Let's work that out. What, yeah. Okay, true, noble, I don't remember the rest of it, I, and I jumped in. Okay. Think of these things. Creation. What else? Okay, faith that's childlike. What else is beautiful? Say it again. Diversity. Humility. I was going to say patience is beautiful. What else? Yeah. Okay. Taking care of the least of these. Justice is beautiful. Isaiah, the Psalms talk all about that. Love. Jesus? That was a bad joke. It follows that, but I won't tell you. Okay. So, the point I'm trying to make here, what I really want you to, to lean into this morning, is that there are all kinds of things that influence what we think is beautiful. In this story, what was beautiful was... You know, most likely a half-naked woman wearing nothing but a tiara, and if not, and if something else, then what was what was perceived to be beautiful in their culture. And I want to challenge us to think about the fact that a lot of the things that determine what we think is beautiful are not congruent with the way Jesus lived, acted, and did life. The second subtext that I think runs right beneath the surface here that I want to sort of end on today is this. Uh, or maybe you could, you could get at it with this question. What or how are we to treat the opposite sex? Right? We have a, 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 a social setting, an, an interaction with two people, a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, and what, what happens, what unfolds is ghastly if you think about how we are to treat one another, male and female. Even just human to human, but in this case, male to female. Um, I got a chance to study with a rabbi this past weekend, so I'm finding myself framing things in questions a lot of the time, but what does it mean for men and women to treat one another with dignity as image bearers of the Creator? What does it mean for, for what is God's design for marriage and in relationships as it relates to submission and equality? I actually said that, but here we go. Um, and in the time remaining, here's the thing. I'm going to scratch the surface on this one. Really, I am. But I think we have to because Esther goes here, and so I want to be honest with the text. And there are some other things that, that happen in chapter 1 we're actually going to continue to unpack. But um, I'm going to scratch the surface on this one. We'll do a woefully inadequate job. But this is a defining piece of Awaken, and so I want, to, I want to touch on this. In general terms, Awaken affirms an egalitarian position of men and women in, in marriage, which is to say 
I think the cross of Jesus calls us to mutual submission, mutual respect, mutual love, mutual sacrifice for one another. In terms of ministry and the role of women in the church, I would say that the key to this conversation for us is it revolves around the gifting of the Holy Spirit, not gender. Now, I say that knowing that there are beautiful expressions of, of faith and of people who are following hard after Jesus who differ from awakening on this, and that's okay. I'm not bashing any, nor am I lifting us up. But I want to be real clear about how we, how we read this and how we interpret it, because that's part of what this community, uh, it's part of who we are as a community. So if a woman's gifted to teach, she should teach. If a woman's gifted to pray, she should pray. If she's gifted to hospitate, she should hospitality, you know. <laughs> she should... <laughs> Heyo. Um, but you get the point, right? By the way, um, men, if you want to do this literally, and if you want to do what Paul actually says in Ephesians, here, can I just challenge you to sit? Can I challenge you to this? If you want to be the man of the house, if you want to lead as a Christian person, if you want to have that authority, for lack of a better term, here's what it looks like because here's what Jesus looks like. You say you're sorry first. You ask for forgiveness first. You serve your spouse first. You take the blame when it's not your fault. You assume responsibility for things that you didn't do. You die to yourself and to your agenda, and you strap a towel around your waist and you wash some feet. Now, briefly, I want to introduce an idea. A, a hermeneutical idea, a theological idea that really actually gets traction or that, that we, that I read this through because I, let's be honest, right? If you look at Ephesians, if you look at some of Corinthians, if you look at Colossians, Paul doesn't agree with what I just said, okay? So how do we get there? The idea is, or, and this is my phrasing of it, a theology of trajectory. Uh, the technical term might be redemptive movement, so how do we read Paul? How do we understand this story of Esther? And how do we do men and women? Uh, I want to offer to you this theology of trajectory. And it asks questions like this. What is the telos or where is this headed? So if something is said in scripture, if Paul says something or if Moses says something or if Jesus says something, where is it headed? What's, what's the trajectory of it? And does this, what's said in scripture, actually get it? Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. I, I'll give you one example. Deuteronomy chapter 21. Uh, if, if you want to turn there, go ahead. Deuteronomy chapter 21. This will kind of illustrate what I'm talking about. This is a text that talks about the spoils of war. Starting in verse 10, it says this. When you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home and have her shave her head. Trim her nails and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her, which is not about geography necessarily, if you know what I'm saying, and be her husband and she will be your wife. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her and treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. How many of you women in the room read this text and it makes your hair kind of stand up in the back of your neck? Anybody? Where you think, that's why I don't give this text to my friends to say, oh, you should read the Bible. 
Because then they stumble on Deuteronomy 21 and they're like, you're a psycho. Like, who are you? And what is this cult crazy place that you go to? I mean, that's nuts, right? Here's the thing. When Deuteronomy chapter 21 comes on the scene, do you know what's normal for the spoils of war? Women are property. The only thing that's left after war are women, children, donkeys, cattle, animals, and houses. Okay, often no men. They kill all the men and what's left all falls into the category of property, which means you can do whatever you want with it. If you would like to have this woman that you find attractive and go to her, right? You know what I mean? And then you're done with her, just discard her. Or or actually, you can sell her as a profit. So this is what's normal in this culture. Now, what I'm trying to say to you, this whole idea of a theology of trajectory or redemptive movement is when the scripture comes on the scene, when God speaks into a context, he doesn't say, when you go and you conquer a neighboring nation and you get the women and children, what you should do is affirm the woman and build her up. And then when she wants to run for president, you should say, go for it. Okay, that'd be like a bomb. That's not, that's way farther than the culture could have handled. So what does scripture do? It moves it one click or it takes it one step towards what? Towards the telos, towards where it's headed, towards redemption, towards what God would have forever and ever. So when Deuteronomy chapter 21 comes on the scene, what's normal is that women are property. They're slaves. They can be sold for profit. They can, you can do whatever you want with them. And Deuteronomy comes on and says, no, people of God don't act that way. In fact, let her shave her head. She likes Sinead O'Connor. It's okay. Uh, let her mourn. Let her do these things, honor her, actually see her as a human being, not a piece of property. Right? Now, here's, the, here's this is, if you don't get anything today, and I realize I'm, I'm a little crazy, but get this. 2,000 years ago, Deuteronomy chapter 21 for the people of God was obedience. 2,000 years down the track of redemptive history, Deuteronomy chapter 21 would be what? Disobedience. For us to treat people this way would be disobedience, right? Because I don't see anybody out there saying, you know what? I think we're at war in Iraq, right? So according to the scriptures, when an Iraqi soldier or an American soldier goes in and they happen to kill a a, a man who's fighting, they should take their wives as prisoners of war, and they can do whatever they want with them. Because that's what this, or, or they should marry them. Do you see what I'm saying? So 2,000 years ago, to do this was to obey, was to a click forward. But 2,000 years later, down the track of redemptive history, this is actually a massive leap backwards. Esther, awaken and how we see women and the role of women and how we read Ephesians, if you would, Colossians chapter, and we'll end here, Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. This is something that Paul says in a number of different places. He puts them all together in Colossians, which is why I'm picking this one, not because it's less text, but because to see them all together, I think is really telling. Says in verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as fitting as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them, right? He's echoing what he says in Ephesians. Children, obey your parents for in everything, in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and for reverence for the Lord. Question. Why 
do we say yay and amen to verses 18 and 21 and discard 22? Like William Wilberforce and Abe Lincoln said it, so we don't have to. This is Paul. Slaves, obey your masters. Masters, be nice to your slaves. We would say yay and amen to 18 and 21, right? Wives, submit to your husbands, husbands, and interpret that a particular way. But then when we get to 22, we go, oh, well, that one's already... Do you see the, the, the discontinuity there? What I want to offer, what I'm trying to challenge us to think about, here's, here, it's two, two things. Either you take it all, or you develop a hermeneutic that allows you to be consistent with the text and answer the hard questions that are raised by it. So as, we, as I offer this idea, this theology of trajectory, this is what I'm getting at. Because what Paul said, okay, if the cross happens here, do we have that little graphic? Can you show that one for me, Katie? If the cross happens here, and what Paul spoke to Corinth or Ephesians or, or Colossae is here, the idea is that what Paul said to, to Corinth or Ephesus or Colossae was not the be-all, end-all. It's not the telos for men and women's relationships in the church and in marriage, forever and ever, amen. I would submit to you that what is the telos is mutual submission, mutual sacrifice, mutual love for one another. So as we move down the track of redemptive history, this is how we read that text. Now, this may, have, may seem far afield from where we are, but I don't think it actually is. The story of Esther brings us front and center with a really, really uncomfortable um, interaction between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. And it begs us to ask the question, how are we to treat one another? How are we to treat each other as husband and wife, as male and female? And it begs to ask the question, what do we see? How, what informs our perception of beautiful? Now, friends, I'll close with this. Uh, the book of Esther leaves us with no shortage of tension. <laughs> right? If you've been here the last couple weeks. I'm sweating. I don't know about you. But it, there's tension regarding the Bible and how we read it. There's tension about regarding the story of God in the Bible and, and the world and how we live in the midst of that. There's tension about the life that we're to live as kingdom people. There's tension about what is beautiful, and, and there's tension about how we treat each other as humans. And I think we could, we could probably, it's safe to say that more often than not in religious circles and certainly Christian circles, tension is not something that we look forward to. Tension is not something that we usually welcome. Actually, we, we typically run from it at all costs, right? It's a, a place of hides. And when there's tension, we equal it to bad or negative. Here's the thing. If you follow Jesus, the way in which we're to live, the call of Jesus, stands in opposition to the world we live in. So if you think about it, as you follow Jesus more, as you, as you give your life wholly to the kingdom of God movement, as you sell yourself out to the way of Jesus, you should feel increasingly more tension because this does not sell with this. The call of Jesus does not, it's not congruent with the world that we live in. And so as you follow Jesus harder, you should feel more tension. The intersection of life and faith 
is what we're after, what we're challenging each other to, what we're hoping for one another, what we're asking you to step into. And there will be tension. And that's okay. In, in fact, sometimes we create it on purpose. And you may think, that's mean. Why do you do that to us? It's actually because I love you. And um, I want the best for you. And uh, just, I was going to try to help, but sorry. <laughs> what I want is for you to think hard and long and well about what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to interpret the scriptures because it's, that's what we do. That's what we have to do is interpret, filter, figure out, give meaning to. It doesn't do it itself. And that's messy. And there's tension. So, my friends, as you leave today, I would ask you to leave with two questions. What informs your perception of beauty? What is beautiful to you and why? Is that of Jesus? And what does it mean to live in relation to your spouse if you have one or in relation to a boyfriend or girlfriend if you have one or in relation to another human being that's not the same sex as you? How do you live in light of the cross, in light of redemptive movement, in, in light of the trajectory of what Jesus accomplishes at resurrection and the cross? And what does that look like? So I'm going to ask Ben and Lindsay to come, and they're going to close with uh, one song. Um, I don't know if this, the words will be on the screen, um, but that doesn't matter. It's a beautiful song, and I think it gets at what we're talking about. So we'll listen, and then I'll pray. The uh, line of the chorus in the song is, Tension is to be loved when it is like a passing note to a beautiful, beautiful chord. And if, uh, if you know anything about music theory, it's a reference there. When, uh, when there's a note that clashes, uh, oftentimes it can be very beautiful, and uh, it's a tension note, but it can lead to the resolve of a beautiful chord. Tension is to be loved when it is like a passing note to a beautiful, beautiful chord. Do I murder us?
stand. Let me, uh, allow me to uh, offer a blessing uh, as you go. Pray with me if you would. God, uh, God of creation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, giver of life, giver of yourself to us, giver of Jesus, your word, your scriptures, and now your spirit. I pray that you would empower your church to be the palpable and tangible expression of the church in the world, of what you dreamt of, what you hoped for, what you longed for when you invited this group of people, anyone in Christ, to be ambassadors of this beautiful story of restoration to a world that needs it. God, I pray for Awaken. I pray for my friends that you would, that their lives would be a note that resolves to a beautiful chord. That the tension that exists between who you've called us to be and the world that we live in would be, that we'd be honest about that. God, that we would not run from it, but lean into it. And God, only by your, only, only by your spirit, only by your spirit can we do this. There is no way we can do and be the kind of people you want us to be without your spirit. So Holy Spirit, come fill us and pour us out, God, to a world that's broken and that needs you. May the story of Esther speak deep into our lives and challenge and inform the way we live, the way we love, the way we relate to each other. I pray by the power of your spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. You guys so much for coming um, if you are new i forgot to say we'd love to know who you are there's uh, buckets on the table there and if you uh, brought an offering today you can pl- place that in there so uh hang out as long as you like coffee's still warm still pots to drink from see you next week find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on facebook at awakening community or on Twitter, and we can community. See you next time.